Our passage for this afternoon is Psalm 131. It's a short one. It's the third shortest of all 150 psalms. Um, doesn't mean the sermon's going to be that short, but uh, it's a short psalm. But it's, it's deep. Um, Spurgeon says it, this is one of the shortest psalms, but one of the longest to learn. And I think that's a helpful word as we uh, look at this together. So let me read Psalm 131. It's printed in your bulletin. It'll be projected behind me. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The word of the Lord. Okay, kids, a couple of things for you to listen to for this, during the sermon today. First one, uh, the center of the universe. The second one, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And third, uh, a milk drunk baby. Okay, we'll, we'll get to all of those. Um, I recognize, even as we are about to open this psalm and talk about it, we've been continuing through this series this summer on the Psalms of Ascent, thinking about these songs that the people of Israel would have sung on their way up to Jerusalem. There are a couple of themes that hit over and over again in those songs. And even in the bulletin, um, as you look at the sermon title, a, a calm and quiet soul. I, I recognize I've already lost some of you. Um, that that you you have already locked it down. <laughs> like you're done. This next twenty thirty minutes is uh, you might hear it a little bit, but not really. And I recognize that that's true because that's my temptation. When I, I see something in the scriptures about a calm and quiet soul, that, that often feels foreign to me. And I've been around church long enough to know that I'm either going to leave here feeling bad about myself because I don't have a calm and quiet soul, or I'm going to be given some unattainable goal to try to meet, to get one. And I'm going to fail by tomorrow, and I'm just going to be frustrated. So I recognize coming in that, that that's where some of us are. There is a restlessness about us. I, I'll say us, I, me, a lot of y'all, as we talk, uh, I, I hear it, I, I feel it, I know um, that it is in the air that we breathe. There is a default mode for us, and it is a churning not a calm and quiet soul. And I'd venture to say you might not even know somebody who, who is this, who has a calm and quiet soul. And you might not have even seen it. Um, and so we're going to try to talk today, I'm going to try to be as practical as I can, as clear as I can about this stuff so that maybe we can get at this together. I need it. Y'all need it. Um, and so as we, as we dig in together, um, I, I, want, I want us to try to see if we can move from this restlessness to a, to a place of calm and a place of quiet. Doesn't that sound nice? <laughs> I want that. 
uh, even, as, uh, even as I'm talking about it. I'm going to pray uh, that, that, would, that, would, that the Spirit would do that for us. So let's pray. Lord God, you are kind in all that you do. Would your word be a light to us to show the way? Would it be a real comfort? Would it give us hope? Help us to rest, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you'll notice, uh, maybe you'll notice, it's actually, I don't think it's printed in the bulletin, but on this psalm, um, the very first thing, if you look in your Bible, you'll see it says, a song of ascents of David. This psalm was written by David, which might surprise you in some ways. There, there's sort of sections of David's life, right? Um, his sort of humble beginnings, uh, very earnest um, and then there's some parts of him being king uh, that are really good and some parts that are horrible, right? And you see his, his, his descent into sin and then um, his repentance out of that. There's some different segments of his life. But um, th- this was written by someone who knows what it is to churn. He knows what it is to feel uh, pride uh, in, a, in a bad way. Uh, and knows what it is to, to feel that ambition, that overarching ambition over everything else. And I think we also feel that. Um, this, this short psalm is going to give us a couple of statements in the negative in, in verse 1. It's going to give us a picture in verse 2. And then hopefully an encouragement in verse 3. So we're just going to kind of take each verse at a time and see if we can't get some encouragement and some hope out of it by the end. David starts, he says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Now, it may sound like he just has sort of turned off his intellectual switch, right? Just turn his brain off, dumb it down. That is not in accord with the rest of the scriptures. There is, there is a lot of uh, intellectual integrity in, in, in the other Psalms and in everything that's happening here. Uh, I think there's something more than just, I need to turn my brain off when I come to church. Or when I'm dealing with Jesus, I just shut my head off and it's all just, uh, it's all just emotions or something like that. David is saying... I have not succumbed to three things. I've not succumbed to pride. I've not succumbed to an overreaching ambition. And I've not succumbed to presumption. Uh, presuming things that only the Lord would know. Right? And I think uh, one of the things that we need to see is, is that the three things that he says he hasn't given into are the things that we sort of, we traffic in all the time we can feel like we are the center of our universe. Uh, David Foster Wallace, uh, in a famous um, commencement speech, This is Water, he says this, Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe. The realest, most vivid and important person in existence. 
We rarely think about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive. But it's pretty much the same for all of us. It's our default setting, hardwired into our boards at birth. Think about it. There's no experience that you have had that you are not the absolute center of. The world as you experience it is there in front of you or behind you, to the left or right of you, on your TV or your monitor, and so on. Other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow, but your own are so immediate, urgent, and real. We think we're the only thing that matters sometimes. Or at least everything matters only in relation to sort of how, how much we matter. If it's important to me, it should be important to everyone. If I don't care about it, nobody should, right? Um, there are so many ways we could go to talk about some of the dangers of pride. I think one of the things that kept coming up this week is, um, of course, it's, it's so prevalent, uh, is our social media usage, the ways that we um, can, can create and portray this sort of edited self, right? Maybe you being the center of your universe looks like the right filter on your Instagram feed that gives the impression that you've got it all together. Um, we, we traffic in being the center of the universe, having it all together in comparison to other people, right? This is where pride gets really difficult for us. When David says, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high, what he's communicating there is a lack of this pride that looks down at everyone else. Uh, Nadia Bowles-Weber is an author, and she says this, our drug of choice right now is knowing who we're better than. Our drug of choice right now is knowing who we're better than. Were I to name the loop, the thing inside of us that's so easily exploited, I would say it's our need to think of ourselves as good. She says, more specifically, our need to think of ourselves as better than others. I know I myself devour anything that gives me that little self-righteous dopamine bump. I love that stuff like chocolate. It's delicious to me. God has the uncanny ability to reach past our photoshopped profile picture and into the stark reality of our actual hearts, into every hidden motive, into every xenophobic thought, into all our secret self-loathing and fear, into every dark thing that we hide so well. None of it is safe from the terrible mercy of God. We can craft this picture of ourselves. Maybe it's in your workplace You're the one who knows everything, or you're the one who's the most efficient. You're the one who has it together. You're the best with clients. You're the, you find these footholds where you can say, I've got it more together than this person. I'm smarter, stronger, faster, whatever it is. At school, gosh, it's endless. At school, the comparison. I've got a better outfit. I've got a better this, a better that, a better car, a better backpack, a better, it's endless. My ambitions are higher than everyone else's. I'm going to do this and this and this. I'll get two majors instead of one. I'll get three majors instead of two. It, it's endless. That ambition to, to achieve, it marks us. 
This is where I think a discussion of our limits is particularly difficult for us. To experience any kind of limit exposes our heart's ambitions. Maybe some of you have felt this even with COVID. Getting sick with COVID has slowed you down in a way that's exposed your drive to be better than your coworkers, to be, to, to be the best employee that you can be, the best boss or whatever. Certainly not being in a workplace environment or not being able to be out amongst other people. We had existential crises all over the place as we couldn't be around other people and compare ourselves to to one another. We also think that we should control everything. And that if if God would just listen to what we want and he would do it the way we would do it we'd be fine. If you take God's infinite knowledge and our very finite knowledge, we want to say with the information that we have, we know what's best for me. And we presume that that's what God thinks too. And then when it doesn't match, when our experience doesn't match our expectations, we're disappointed frustrated, we lash out at one another. I think I know exactly how my kids should behave at every moment of every day. And it usually revolves around not getting in my way. And when they don't listen, when my experience is different than my expectations, it exposes my presumption. You feel that? You know what that's like? We think we know exactly who the best person would be for us to marry. And then we get married. (laughs) And we realize that the person that we thought was ideal for us is actually a sinner. Not as big a sinner as we are, but a sinner in ways that make us more frustrated than our own sin. Right? And it creates this tension and this frustration, and there is this discouragement that comes. We have to deal with all of these default modes in our heart that cry out for us to be better than somebody else, that cry out for us to reach every goal that we've set for ourselves, that cry out for God to do things my way. And here we have David, an older saint, for us say, I've not done these things. I've struggled with them, but I've not done them. I'm reminded of somebody else in the Bible, Mary, the mother of Jesus. If you remember in Luke 1, the angel of the Lord comes and visits her. (laughs) This young virgin and says she's not married she's betrothed to Joseph but the angel says you're going to give birth to Jesus the savior of the world and Mary Mary says behold I am the servant of the Lord 
let it be to me according to your word. Do you hear the echoes of David? I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. I may not understand what's happening here with the little sliver of information that the angel of the Lord just gave me, but I trust you. Let it be to me according to your word. That feels crazy to me. So David tells us he's not struggled with these things and gives us this picture of what he thinks this actually looks like in real life. Verse 2, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. I, I used to think and have, have actually thought for a while when I've read this that this is this is the milk drunk baby pose, right? Some of you know what a baby looks like. Maybe kids, some of you have younger siblings and you've held a baby right after they've fed, right? And it is just fat and happy, right? They can be, can't even move their arms. They just are laid back so, so at peace, and I think actually that'll preach. That is a good picture of what's happening here. And some scholars think that that's what's happening. But it's even a little more sophisticated than that. I think what's happening. Look, it says, like a weaned child with its mother. Now, a weaned child in those days could have been three or four. Um, and they, have, they are a child that has gone through this process of weaning off of uh, their mother's milk or, you know. And so they... Um, that period of weaning a baby, some of you may be in the throes of that now or remember what that was like, uh, that baby knows its mama and knows what he gets from his mama. It is good, it's filling, and he wants it a lot. At least our babies all were very hungry all the time. And they wanted to eat. And so to have a mom say to a weaning child, here are some peas, mushed peas, some squished avocado, some, right, some plum baby food, whatever it might be, right? Whatever it is, just imagine, put yourself in the mindset of a young baby getting that for the first time. All you've known is this precious milk, and now you're getting this other stuff. <laughs> it's no wonder there are fits thrown and peas tossed and all of these things all over the place because these children, these babies, aren't getting what they want. And yet, as a baby goes through that process of weaning and becomes weaned, where do they land? They land in a place where they recognize that their mama is not their only source of food. They go to her for comfort in other ways. And so the picture that David gives us is of a baby a little bit older who, who can eat table food and knows there's another meal coming, but can go and lay in the lap of their mom 
and just rest without the anxiety, without the fear that they're never going to get fed again. Your meal is coming. Go to your mama to be soothed, to be comforted. And that's the picture that we have here, right? In, these, in this Texas summer heat, can, it's the holding of the baby and everybody's sweaty, but the kid is so happy just resting right here. That's the picture that David gives us. It's of a confident, dependent little, bit, little, little child. Now, in our minds, if I say a confident child, what do you immediately think? Independent. A confident child is one that can go run and play and do whatever in the neighborhood or, you know, can, can take care of themselves, right? Put, do the Velcro on their shoes or whatever. Here, this picture is of a confident, dependent child. And that picture's supposed to be me and you. That's the picture of someone who's not proud or haughty, overly ambitious. It's of a confident, dependent pastor. A confident, dependent teacher. Confident, dependent mom. The picture here is not one of a lack of need. It's knowing where to get your needs met. And from that place of security, facing whatever may come. And we're terrible at that, just collectively, as a group. It feels like weakness. to be confident in God, our Savior, our provider, and dependent on him. We'd much rather have all of our stuff together than to display a dependency on him. Verse three. We've seen this move before. This has happened a lot in the Song of Ascents where uh, an individual has started and he's spoken, and he said, let Israel say, or he's called out to Israel to hope in the way that he is hoping. So that's what we get in verse 3. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. It becomes this corporate cry. As I experience this confident dependence on the Lord, I want you to experience it too. I want Trinity to be a place where that, that's what marks us. It's confident dependence on the Lord. Doesn't mean all our circumstances are going to be fine. <laughs> it doesn't mean we're not going to get sick or lose a job or have weird relational dynamics with other people. It, it means that whatever comes, our hope is in the Lord. from this time forth and forevermore, that moving forward, we would be marked as confident, dependent 
sojourners on this journey with the Lord. Now, how, how do we do that? What would it look like? Uh, I remember um, Jamar Tisby, um, who's a writer, um, a Christian author. Uh, he writes a lot about um, racism and uh, racial dynamics in our country. And um, we heard him speak in Virginia uh, a number of years ago. And he talked about like what could uh, majority culture do to help minority culture in our society? What would it look like? And he said, it was really interesting, he said, majority culture, imagine majority culture sort of functions on one of those like people mover deals, you know, at the airport, right? It's like an escalator, but it doesn't go up or down, it just moves, right? Imagine yourself, if if you get on one of those things and you stop, you're actually moving, right? You get it? And his point is this, that you think, okay, I understand what's happening here. I can see these racial dynamics. I am on the people mover, but we're just the current, right? This people mover is taking us a place that we may not want to go, or it's just moving us in the direction that majority culture has always moved us, right? And so to, to be proactive in dealing with racial dynamics in our, in our society, we actually need to like turn around on the people mover. You guys have seen kids and stuff do this at the airport, right? We actually have to turn around and walk against the grain just to stay where you are, and you have to almost run to, to move in the other direction. Do you see that? Now, applying it to this passage, There is, again, this default setting in us is like being on that people mover. If you just recognize your heart is prone to pride and haughtiness, uh, to over-ambition, right, overarching, overreaching ambition, and to presumption, and you're just on the people mover, the natural tendency of your heart is to what? It's to be proud, haughty, overly ambitious, presumptive, You've got to figure out how to turn yourself around and move in the other direction. This is not a passive, let God just overwhelm you and you'll automatically be dependent on him and confident that he keeps his promises and he'll do what you want him to do. There is a labor here in verse two. I have calmed and I have quieted. The picture in the Hebrew is actually of like a leveling, right? Of the highs and the lows of my soul, I've actually leveled them so that it's straight across. And that takes work. There is a labor, like tending a garden. You have to tend your soul to protect against these things, to actually progress in calming and quieting your soul. Now, God works in you as you work out this salvation, but there is work for you to do. So what is that work? What would it look like to move the other direction on the people mover? And as clearly as I can say it, I think it's this, that we just forget a ton. Like repeatedly, we forget a ton. Uh, Maybe you feel this around your house, 
right? If there are new rhythms, if you've moved into a new house recently, right, and your bedtime routine is like, okay, let the dog out, turn these lights off, uh, make sure all the, all the uh, you know, the doors are locked, checking this and that, whatever. There are a couple times in the last month where I have just forgotten to let the dog back in, <laughs> right? We've been in our house a long time, and I've just been preoccupied or not even paying attention, and my dog, who I love, <laughs> I love him, and he's just been stuck outside, scratching on the door, and I'm like, oh, I got to let him back inside, right? There is a tendency in us, if we're not careful, to just forget all the time. So, put yourself in a place where you remember And you have to do it over and over and over again. Put yourself in a place where you remember. That's why weekly church attendance is so important. It doesn't just make us feel good that people are here. You need it. You need to remember the things about Jesus that are really true. You need to know, because you'll forget. You'll forget by the night. And you need to remember. It's why the Daily Prayer Project is helpful. It's why community groups matter. It's why youth group matters. It's why all of those, they're just places where you can put yourself, where you're going to be reminded of all that Jesus has accomplished for you. Of everything God has done to, to save you, to care for you, to provide for you. Your next meal is coming from him that spiritual food that you need, but you put yourself in a place where you can remember. I'll close with this. If you were to fast forward thousands of years, a couple thousand years, give or take, to Jesus... The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the one who on the cross cried out to his Father and was not answered. We got to remember that. We need to remember that Jesus, the perfect one, the one in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Spirit, came to earth to live the life that we couldn't, to die in our place, and in that death, He did not experience this calm and quiet soul like a weaned child with its mother. God turned his back as Jesus took the judgment and the penalty for sin that we deserved. And because he did that, God will never turn away from you. God has displayed to the uttermost his care for you in sending Jesus to live and die and be raised to new life for you. And because Jesus did that for us, God is always faithful to his promises. Our hope is not unfounded. It's on the most sure thing that there is. What will happen if I crawl up metaphorically into God's lap? Will he reject me? No. Will he hold me? Yes. 
Will he care for me and provide for me? Absolutely yes, every time. You have got to put yourself in a place where that is a regular reminder for you. Where the spirit can work in your heart and mine that we would remember and keep remembering all of these things are true for us. We've got a handful of folks heading off to college for the first time or maybe heading back and um, working with college students for a long time. Maybe some new TCU students are here too. And I'll just say, like, this is my prayer for you. As I've been studying Psalm 131, I've had y'all in mind, knowing that several of y'all are leaving, that, like, this would be true. That you would go to this new place and you would find a church to remind you of the gospel. That you would find friends to keep you in fellowship. That you would remember all that Jesus has done for you. That you'd come back here and participate in life here to remember. It's such an exciting time. We're praying for y'all. We're so thankful for the ways that God has been at work in your lives. And, and I hope that as they head off, as the rest of us send them, as we think about our own hearts, that we would all be encouraged to remember all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord God, again, you are more kind than we deserve. You are good to us in Jesus. We thank you for his life and death and resurrection. We pray that you would be with us as we partake of this meal. Would you help us to remember? Help us to taste of your goodness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.